The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. pastors here. It's good to be with you. We are in our second week of our spring series on renewal. And uh, this morning I want to begin by reminding us of a couple of things that we discussed last week. And the first is that we live in an increasingly secularized society. This began in the 60s with the sexual revolution, the redefinition of what it means to be man and woman and how they ought to relate with one another. Continued into the 90s with the rise of digital technology. And then on to today. Our political climate now is more hostile and sick than it's ever been, isn't it? And this is largely due to an overemphasized view of what politics are and what they're supposed to do. Both sides of the aisle, conservative Christian And secular liberals have placed way too much of their hope in their candidate. And this has led to both sides freaking out, quite literally, when they don't get their way. Unfortunately, the American church hasn't fully escaped the effects of the secular culture she finds herself in. As I shared last week, in particular... The church exhibits virtually no distinct behavior from the secular society as it pertains to entertainment and self-reflection. Entertainment and self-reflection. Most American Christians are just as addicted to the shows and devices, to the smartphones, as everyone else is. Because of this, very few of us have a healthy understanding of our own emotions because we take so little time to ask the why questions. The why questions get at what's going on underneath my behavior. Why do I behave the way that I do? We struggle to ask those questions because we've allowed ourselves to be so busy with work and friends and entertainment and devices no different from anyone else. Subsequently, our churches particularly in cities like ours, are watching people leave in droves. So the question is, how do we change this? What do we do different? And I think that the answer is the way that we change this is through personal renewal that leads to spiritual revival. Personal renewal that leads to spiritual revival. Again, we've named our series Renewal, because renewal is the repairing of something that's worn out or run down or broken. It's a returning to a way of being after an interruption. In this case, the interruption is the effects of secularism that we've allowed to influence our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. The way of being we're trying to return to is not American evangelicalism in its heyday before church decline was on the rise. The way of being we're trying to return to is a holistic approach to apprenticing Jesus 
that includes self-awareness and emotional health, which means we're going to choose to not be so busy. We're going to practice self-reflection and times of prayer throughout our week. We're going to choose to not be so dependent on our devices and entertainment. We're going to practice solitude. We're going to choose to not put so much hope in our politics. We're going to put our hope in Jesus and the kingdom as the way to human flourishing. Renewal, then, is a work of restoration. And it's brought about by followers of Christ who are committed to recapturing the lost spiritual discipline of self-reflection and thereby emotional health. So last week... We looked at the inseparable link between knowing God and knowing the self. The two are inseparably linked. We cannot know God the way we were meant to. And we cannot allow him to change us deep down at the root. Unless we're on a journey towards understanding those parts of our souls that we need the love of Jesus to come into. And conversely, we cannot know ourselves rightly unless we understand who God made us to be, how he has designed us. The two go hand in hand. Christian cultural commentator, say that three times fast. Mark Sayers said this recently. What if, at this moment, God would like to renew the Western church? What if God has let it get so bad What if you have to get to the point where brilliant preaching that's culturally relevant, it ain't going to work? Incredible worship that is trying to be as close to the culture as possible, that's not going to work. The whole aesthetic and design of churches, even when it's actually ahead of the world, it's still not going to work. Leaders that project this atmosphere and persona of call and seem really relevant, not going to work. You can download every Netflix series, comment on it, watch every independent movie, listen to every cutting-edge album, reference it in your churches, and that's not going to work. You can go into different kinds of discipleship structures and groups, but none of it's going to work because renewals happen when people get to the end of themselves and there's nothing to rely on except a contending on your knees for God's presence to move. What Sayers is getting at is revival, spiritual awakening. Christian revivals have taken place throughout history and have to do with large numbers of folks coming to know Jesus and follow him. But how do revivals begin? Typically, there's at least a couple of things at play when revivals take place. First, there's a reevaluation of the way Christian living and church is done. So often, revival breaks out after a period where Christians grow apathetic or too comfortable in their faith, whereby they begin to reevaluate their discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus. It's happened after periods of church attendance decline as well. So that's the first thing. We reevaluate what we're doing, how we're doing it, self-reflection. Secondly, every major revival throughout the ages can be traced back to one Christian's personal renewal manifested in desperately seeking Jesus and his presence. So much so that things like prayer, conviction, 
repentance, confession, happen frequently and with ease. This leads them to an enthusiasm, a fervency in their walk with Jesus that begins to influence those around them who then catch on to the same movement of the Spirit. All revivals are a result of God's movement at a particular time with a particular people who are seeking to recapture the vibrant presence of Jesus as they apprentice Him in their daily lives. This morning's sermon, we're going to be looking at understanding our own story or family of origin, and I want to begin with a quote. This is from an unknown Hasidic rabbi, probably around 1100 AD. When I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew older, I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized, as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state, and who knows, maybe even the world. I want to submit that if we, Central Bible Church, want to see the Spirit of God break out in our community, here, and in our city, and the world, then we begin by focusing on our own individual renewal, which means that we begin the journey towards introspection and emotional health. So last week's sermon was an overview of the importance of self-awareness, where we invited you to recapture this piece of Christian spirituality that we've lost over the last several decades. If you left last week wondering what you could be doing in specific to grow in self-reflection, you're in luck because today's sermon is going to narrow the focus a bit by considering the area of life that has shaped every single one of us most significantly, our family of origin. By the way, I'm not sure if today's sermon is more of a sermon or a testimony, but either way, I think it will be helpful for us. Each of us has a story, and we live out of that story. Every person's story is an accumulation of decisions, experiences, emotions, and relationships. Good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, each of us has a unique story with unique experiences, but what we all share in common is the tremendous and significant impact our family has had on us. What all of us share is our family's impact. There isn't a person alive who hasn't been significantly shaped by the relationships they first experienced as a child with those who raised them. Some of us have had some really beautiful childhoods and come from a wonderful family who've loved Jesus well. And if that's you, praise God. Honestly, praise God. Do not ever feel guilty for having a story like that. I hope that I'll be able to say, that my girls will be able to say, that they had that kind of story. Even still, healthy households have issues, don't they? Every household has issues. No family is perfect, as we all know. I recognized this and learned this very quickly from my time at Bible college, where I learned that some of my peers who, who came from relatively healthy families um, still de- dealt with things like legalism, pride, especially if self-reflection wasn't a priority. 
So whether your family of origin was relatively healthy or fairly unhealthy, the need to understand the particular ways that your family has shaped you remains. While each of us comes from a particular family that's different than ours, we've all been formed and shaped by our, by our childhood into who we are today in ways that we are sometimes aware of, but often totally oblivious to. My hope this morning is that you would begin to consider how the experience of growing up in the family that you did has affected the way that you think and live today and to begin to allow Jesus to heal areas of pain and difficulty. And I want to acknowledge on the front end that some of us have experiences from our childhood that are very difficult, maybe traumatic, which makes us feel uncomfortable to think about. Some of us have never discussed certain events from that time. The pain has been too great, or the experience has been blocked out from our memory to help protect us. Please know that self-reflection and healing in these areas is a process, and it takes a lot of time. And you have a lot of people in this church who will walk with you and sit with you quietly, patiently, as you begin to process things like this. You are not alone. No matter what your family background, every, what every person in this room needs in order to do this, to process our family of origin and the effects of our family, we each need the gospel. We need the truth that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever thought, and yet we, at the very same time, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. So we, we all need the gospel. We all need a safe place to process. We need people who will listen, and we all need time. Gospel, safety, and time. The weight of the experiences of others and the chains some of us feel shackled to because of our family of origin is not lost on me. This was a hard sermon to write. So let's ask Jesus for help. Father, would you now free me up to speak truth and love? Holy Spirit, I pray that your, your grace would be felt, that your word, that your goodness would be felt by your people this morning. And that there would be freedom, relief, healing. I love you. Amen. Okay, so here's where we're going. First, we're going to look at the reality that we are relational beings. Duh. Second, we're going to look at our memories. Science, question mark? So talk a little bit about science in church. Be good. And third, we're going to talk about breaking the cycle. So first, with relational beings. John, 1 John 4.1 Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves God, whoever, lo whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We are relational because God is relational. You and I are relational beings because God has made us this way. 
We are made in his likeness, in the likeness of a relational God. The God of Scripture exists in relationship with himself, doesn't he? He is a triune God. While existing as three distinct persons, they share one divine essence. And in this passage, that essence is described as love. The only way God can be love is if he exists as community. This is why the Trinity is so important and unique to the Christian faith. The Father gives himself to the Son, the Son gives himself for the Father, and that gift for each other, the gift of each other for the other, then manifests itself in the Spirit. So this is how God's essence can truly be love. God has made us to give and receive love. Because we were made in God's likeness, we long for relational connection. God designed us for one another, and he designed us to receive from one another. We begin relating to others and giving and receiving from others from the very moment we're born. Let's look at a quote. This comes from Richard Plass and James Cofield. These are two um, men that I I studied under a few years ago uh, through a, a pastor school. And uh, they wrote this book, The Relational Soul. Extremely helpful. Um, Really helped shape a lot of this sermon today. This is what they say. Learning to relate starts at least as early as the day we are born and probably in the womb. Our way of entering into and maintaining all our relationships, not just marriage, is one of the earliest psychological structures formed in us. We come into the world neurologically wired to make connections to attach to others. When our early connections are healthy, we will find it easier to connect well as adults. To the extent our emotional attachment with our primary caregivers is lacking while we were children, we will find our relational capacity limited as adults. It is virtually impossible to overstate the significance of our learned relational attachment system in the early years and its profound influence on our relational experience as adults. The quality and character of the programming we received early in life establishes a pattern of attachment that controls our relationships later in life. Therefore, The way you learn to relate to others in the home, along with the emotions you experienced and the ways you both gave and received love from your parents and siblings has largely determined how you relate to others right now. So is it important to understand ourselves in light of our family of origin? Yes, it's a non-negotiable. You cannot know yourself in a meaningful way until you've spent significant time looking at and processing your story. So... Memories. If we're going to understand our past and how the homes that we grew up in have shaped us and how we relate to others today, we obviously have to be able to recall what happened back then, don't we? The problem is that we have two kinds or levels of memory. First is what we call conscious memory or explicit memory. The explicit memories we make are the ones we're aware of when we're making them or we're we're able to actively remember and recall things from our explicit memory. This is the kind of stuff you use when you recall highlights from your high school days. Someone says, hey, what was high school like for you? Believe it or not, I was nominated to be homecoming king 
my senior year, uh, I performed a choreographed dance to a medley of early 2000s pop hits in front of the entire school with about seven other guys who were nominated. I was voted by my senior classmates most likely to never grow up. My best friend and I used to skateboard every day after school until dark, and then we'd go to the nearest fast food drive through blaring, I just died in your arms tonight by cutting crew. Those are things easy to remember. They're not that significant, but I can remember them easily because they're in my explicit memory. Explicit memory begins forming around three years old. So the memories we're aware of, we can recall them with ease, and they begin forming around three years old, and they're easy to recognize. Now, implicit memory, or unconscious memory. This is the tricky one. These are the memories we make when we're unaware of what we are remembering or even that we are remembering them. So these start forming from birth and they're very difficult to notice. And then we're fully developed from birth at about 15 months, these memories. We don't have to search our memory banks in order to know how to ride a bike, do we, each time we get on one. It's something ingrained in our unconscious memory. That's why when someone says, hey, it's just like riding a bike, don't worry about it. They mean that whatever you're about to do that you feel unsure of is going to feel second nature because you already possess the necessary tools or implicit memories that will help you succeed. Because implicit memory is formed so early in all of us, what is remembered are not episodes recorded in words or pictures. Rather, this memory is made up of emotions, perceptions, feelings, bodily sensations. Think about the bike example one more time. Although we can describe riding a bike verbally, we don't actually remember riding a bike with words. We remember it with our body. It's something felt. It's an instinct or an intuition. This is the way God designed us as embodied souls. Two things, then, are crucial when it comes to implicit memory. First, we aren't typically aware of what is being encoded in this memory. We don't have much choice in it, either. We don't don't have to pay attention for something to be absorbed into that memory bank. Secondly, we are not aware that it's even operating. It's working, and we can't really sense it or know what exactly is being embedded into our implicit memories. And it is out of our implicit memories that we relate to others. Our implicit memory holds the ways of building healthy and unhealthy relational habits, ways of attaching to others, and how close we feel we can be to others and still feel safe. Implicit memory is always active in our relationships. It shapes the way we perceive, process, and present ourselves in the relational world. Our willingness to be intimate and to trust others in relationship was coded into our implicit memory and shaped by our earliest experiences with our family. How you relate to others today is a result of how you you were related to as a child. Going one step further, the implicit memory forms a basic blueprint, a way of relating from birth. Our blueprint then sets us up for how we do relationships 
in ways that actually reinforce those earliest relational experiences. It's a feedback loop. We've developed specific ways of relating to others from others right when we come out of the womb. And then as time goes on, we begin relating to others in the same way others related to us because it's the most familiar and normal to us. So again, is it important to understand the relational dynamics and ways of relating to others from your childhood? Very. It literally affects how you relate today. You might be wondering, side note, what role does thinking and cognitive processing play in this? Not as much as we'd like. The blueprint for how we relate to others was already developed by the time we were able to begin verbally processing things. And research indicates that even our cognitive processing is affected by our earliest emotional experiences. How do we break the cycle? I'm not saying that we're helpless. We have a God who loves renewal and restoration. But still, how do we remember things from our past that mark the way we relate to others that we didn't even know were shaping us in the first place? How do we break the cycle of relating to others the same way we related with our family of origin? The first thing that we can do is we can ask the why questions. We talked about this last week. Why do I feel so upset at fill in the blank right now? Why do I feel offended about that thing? As you do this, be careful not to rescue yourself too quickly. We all have that inner lawyer in us who's ready to go to bat for us anytime we feel we're being prosecuted. Don't seek to justify so quickly. Sit with it. Pray about it. Ask the Spirit to search your heart to help you understand the why underneath the behavior. Last year, my wife and I attended a, a wedding of a friend up in Seattle. One of Julie's longtime girlfriends was getting married. There, was, there were several friends there who Julie hadn't connected with in years. And after the ceremony, Julie got up and talked with a couple of those friends. She didn't say anything to me when she got up to catch up with them. And she didn't invite me to meet some of those people that I hadn't met before. This really bothered me. With each passing minute of me sitting by myself, I felt more and more offended. How could she not want me to meet them? Doesn't she know, don't they know that she's married now? That she has kids? Doesn't she want to introduce me, her husband and the father of her children to these people? I was pissed. We weren't even in the car before I started in on her for what she did. I told her how awful it feels to be left out of meeting important people from her past as someone who's important in her life today. I continued on in the car. Julie was rightly shocked by the level of offense I was showing, and I could tell that she felt really caught off guard. And calmly, she listened very patiently and asked gentle questions to help me understand what was going on. Without asking directly, she helped me ask my own, myself, why? What's going on? Why do I feel so offended by this one little interaction? Was I feeling angry or was I feeling unwanted, which manifested itself in anger? If so, why would that be the case? 
Let's come back to that in a moment. So the first thing that we can do is begin asking why. And the second thing that we can do is that we can learn to listen to others. You can pay close attention to what trusted friends say to you about how you relate to them. Listen to them. Pay close attention to emotive words they use to describe their relationship with you. Hear their concerns and feedback. This harkens back to my story that I shared with you last week about the other elders on the team here telling me that my tone and communication is sometimes too strong and that whatever I'm talking about can get lost in dialogue because I come off as so strong when I speak. We have, we have to listen to what others have to say. So many of us have put up walls that protect us and insulate us from hearing the insights of others, even those who are close to us, and it hurts us. We have to pay close attention to the feedback we're receiving. Not only that, but we have to go out of our way to invite that feedback. You can sense when someone has put walls up, can't you? And you can tell that they're probably not going to listen to you. Do you still try to press into them if you can tell they're not going to listen? Not, not usually, do we? It's hard enough to give constructive criticism in a loving and kind way when someone has actually invited you to do so, let alone when they haven't asked for it and they're not going to show any signs that they want to listen. So, go out of your way to give those that you trust in your community permission to love you in this way. Growing up, my mom and I did a lot of arguing, especially in high school. Shocker. We'd argue and fight, and when, I was, when it was clear that the argument was going nowhere, what did I do? I kept going with it. I had to be sure she knew that she was wrong and I was right. My mom had to believe me and understand why my perspective was fair and reasonable. Even to this day, I struggle with this, particularly with my mom, but also with others. She would say, let it go, Andrew. I'm done arguing. And that killed me, and she knew it. When I was younger, I wasn't sure why it bothered me so much. I couldn't put, put into words as to what I was feeling, but I knew that I needed to be heard. I needed to be believed and agreed with. I've come to recognize that my desire to be heard and believed is a deeply rooted issue of trust. Combined with trust issues, I've always had an exaggerated desire to be wanted or included, primarily those I'm closest to. As I ask myself how the Holy Spirit is working in me, I recall the story I just told you about Julie and I at the wedding and my need to be seen by her and her friends. I recall my issue of communication coming off too strong, needing to be believed and heard. These things have had a significant impact on the way that I relate to those outside of my wife and my mom. On some level, it impacts all of my relationships. These things also point to something deep beneath the surface, an experience, a feeling from long ago. My mom was a single mom. She raised me by herself, no help from my dad financially or otherwise. I've never met my dad to this day. She was raised in a legalistic home with an authoritarian father who was also a police officer, which didn't help. He struggled deeply with control, and she felt the wrath of that struggle. When she turned 18, 
She was glad to leave. She was thrilled to be out from under his roof. She started college. She was enjoying this new unrestrained freedom she so badly had wanted. And she started dating my dad and quickly got pregnant. The reality, the reality of life caught up to her quick. She worked several low-paying jobs to pay the bills and didn't have, we didn't have much in those early years. She was young, she was stressed, and she was overwhelmed. She still wanted a life of her own and in some ways wasn't ready to be a mom. I was watched by babysitters as far back as I can remember. One of the sitters who watched me was close to my mom. She watched me for years. She had some kids of her own. She also was a single mom, but stayed at home and lived off welfare. Like anyone, she had a lot of her own baggage. I was over there a lot as a young boy. There were times my mom would drop me off for the weekend. I'd spend two nights there, sometimes more. It felt like an eternity because she treated me so poorly. She was emotionally abusive. Being the oldest of the kids, whenever someone did something wrong and she wasn't in the room to see what happened, I alone would bear the, the weight of the punishment. I would be made to sit facing the wall in her dark kitchen and she would set a timer for 30 or 45 minutes and walk away. To a six-year-old, it felt like it would never end. I felt unsafe and scared to go back over there. I knew that when the weekend was coming, I was probably going to have to go back. And I would plead with my mom in tears to let me stay with her at home. Let me go with you and your friends, mom. Please don't make me go there. I can remember standing at a window at the sitter's house and staring out at the parking lot, just hoping my mom would come back at any moment. When I told her how bad it was, my mom would tell me that I was exaggerating or that I just missed her and that she would be back tomorrow to get me. Often, I wept all the way to the door of the sitter's house, which didn't do me any favors with her. My mom didn't believe me when I told her how I was being mistreated. The hurt of not feeling wanted by my mom and not being believed in the midst of the, that kind of trauma runs deep within me and has had a significant impact on how I relate to others. I can remember a time or two in junior high or high school when I tried to explain to my mom how that experience affected me. She was still sure I was misremembering, being dramatic. The experience of not feeling wanted, of not being believed, bruised my soul. What does a young man do when this happens? He feels an exaggerated need to be included by those closest to him. He feels he must be believed, even agreed with, when in conversation with others. He feels the need to test the trustworthiness of others by raising the intensity level in the relationship so that he can gauge where they're at. Are they committed to him? Do they love him? These are the primary ways I've been able to identify the hurt for, felt from those implicit memories and how they've shaped the way I relate to others. I'm glad to say that one of the things that helped me and part of the healing of that part of my story happened about a year and a half ago when my mom and I sat in my living room and we wept together over the trauma of, of that time.
I was able to share with her about how much that hurt me. And she listened. She cried. She told me she was so sorry that she didn't listen to me. I forgave her, and she received my forgiveness. It was hard, but it was good for our souls. And I recognize that some of us won't get that opportunity, or, nor would it be appropriate in certain situations to reconcile like that. But I encu- I'd encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to pursue it. All of this leads to the third way that we can learn to understand how we've been shaped by our past. You can share your story with others. Wait, so I just need to talk about my life and it'll all be better? No, don't be cynical. Stay with me. What is held in our unconscious memory can move into our conscious memory. We can identify our interpretations. How does this happen? It would seem the answer would be very complicated, involved, a therapeutic process, but it's not. The way God designed us to see and own our interpretations of life and thus to have a clear sense of our identity is through the telling of our story in the presence of a loving, wise person. As we rehearse the events of our lives in the receptive presence of another, the implicit dots begin to reveal themselves. The picture of our life begins to emerge. By means of lines drawn between the events, emotions and interpretations, we see our story more clearly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We learn to love by being loved. This is the mystery of vulnerability, confession, and repentance. The journey towards renewal and self-reflection is not a road traveled alone. We need other people. We need others to help us make sense of what's happened. We need to welcome their listening ear and their feedback. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Jesus will meet you there. Thanks, buddy. Jesus will meet you there in the kindness and gentleness of trusted friends. Our stories are composed of three things. The events, that is what happened. The emotions, how that event made me feel. And then there's the interpretation. And this is what affects the way we relate to others. What we think we learned from those events and emotions. For me, you can see how the event of feeling unwanted and not being believed by my mom affected me by the emotions of deep sadness, fear, and distrust. The key to understanding how it has impacted the way I relate to others is by recognizing what my interpretation of those emotions and events are. One of the ways I've interpreted those past events and emotions is by questioning the trust of others or demanding too much trust from them. By making sure that I'm believed and by needing to be heard and wanted in order to feel safe. When we sit down with trusted friends and we invite them into our story, we get the opportunity to process things hidden in our implicit, unconscious ways of relating to the world. When we share our story with others, we get a new set of eyes to look at those events and emotions. 
And we, be, we can begin processing how those things have shaped how we relate to others. The good news for all of us this morning is that God invites us into his story. He does not leave you in the pain and hurt of your past. Rather, he gives you a new story with a new family. That new story is one where you become a son or a daughter in God's family. You are no longer bound to the consequences, good or bad, of your earthly family. Christian, you have been made new through the death and blood of Jesus. By his wounds, we are healed. Our God is a suffering God. Pain, our God knows pain. Loss, our God knows loss. Abuse, he understands abuse. Shame, fear, loneliness, he knows it all. Because he did not bring the gospel to us with just words on a paper. He came as a man, as a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he is Jesus of the scars. This God gives us a new identity. But like him, the scars of our past remain. Why? To remind us that it is in and through our weakness that he brings power and restoration to the world. He was made sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His suffering led to the greatest thing man has ever known. Freedom from flesh and forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't erase our past as we apprentice him because he wants to take the pain and brokenness and hurt and he wants to bring healing and peace and then out of that place, he wants to use you to bring healing and peace to broken and hurting folks around you. What man meant for evil, God used for good. You think of the story of Joseph, abandoned, hurt by his brothers, left for dead, imprisoned. But he would go on to reinterpret his story. That third step, the interpretation, as God would begin to work and renew and restore Joseph's life, he would begin to reinterpret his own story through God's story. And Jesus offers you and I that same freedom. The power of the gospel isn't that we get to forget what happened in the past and just move on. No, it's much sweeter than that. The power of the gospel is that God in Christ wants to come into those dark, painful places of your soul so that he can help you reinterpret your story. Where there was once deep pain, there is now an opportunity to empathize with others in their pain. Where there was once loneliness and fear, there is new and deep compassion and love for those who feel isolated and afraid. God's intention is to heal our brokenness and patch up our wounds. He allows the scars and weakness to remain. We then are, we are then to go out and heal others as wounded healers. Discipleship, then, must include honest reflection on the positive and negative impact of my family of origin, as well as other major influences in my life. This is hard work. But the extent to which we can go back and understand how it has shaped us will determine to a large degree our level of awareness and our ability to break destructive patterns, pass on constructive legacies, and grow in love toward God and people. Don't believe the lie 
that your experiences and emotions are unique to you or that others would think less of you by sharing your story, by talking about those painful, difficult experiences. God wants to use you and your story to love and bless others. How many of us feel afraid to be vulnerable, to share things like that? And at the same time, how how many of us, when we hear others being open and vulnerable, feel like they're actually being courageous, not foolish? We all do. We all have a story that Jesus intends on transforming, renewing, restoring. Invite others into your story as you ask Jesus to begin renewing and restoring your past. He will meet you there. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we love you. Jesus, I thank you that you are not a God who sits in a far-off, distant place, who simply just says with words, forgiven, freedom. God, you came down as a man. You lived and dwelt among us so that we might be able to know that our God truly understands the pain and the difficulty of this life. You experienced mistreatment, being misunderstood, being bruised, deceived, hurt. So many things, God, that we can relate to. Jesus, I thank you that you are Jesus of the scars. That you came down to be with us, to dwell among us, to know us. And that you redeem the brokenness the difficulty and the pain of our past so that we may be able to love others well. We want revival, God, but it starts with each and every one of us looking at our own selves, our stories, and allowing you to come into those places to bring healing. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would begin that work now, that you would put us on the journey towards real self-reflection as it pertains to families or family background, or family of We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.